Hey everyone, welcome to Orange Crushing It, a weekly series dedicated to high drive, passionate and motivated individuals. I'm your host, Frank Clark, President and CEO of The Mr. Orange. This shows a weekly dose of business, life and personal development principles geared toward bringing out the adrenaline junkie and overachiever in each and every one of you. As a seasoned entrepreneur of over five companies producing hundreds of millions in revenue, I'm going to personally be sharing my stories of success and, of course, my life-defining massive screw-ups, <laughs> as well as featuring inspiring guests, business leaders, athletes, thrill-seekers who just truly want to walk their talk and make life happen. Stick around, and let's get crushing. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Orange Crushing It. My name is Frank Clark. I'm the CEO of The Mr. Orange and Orange Crushing It, and I have an incredible guest with me today. I am blessed to have a good friend, a mentor, and somebody that I'm really starting to get to know on a, on a very personal and professional level. I have Joe Hagen with me. Joe is a financial specialist. He started a company called Wealth Colony seven years ago with the objective of providing access to institutional and alternative investments for individual investors. He's a Marist grad and a veteran of Wall Street for over 30 years actually 25 years, but he's got 30 years of practical experience here with asset management, investment banking, private equity. And today he specializes in asset-backed alternative investments that educating his clients on self-directed IRAs with goals of maximizing existing IRA assets and closing that retirement gap. Uh, He spends his time coaching, free time coaching with youth sports and relaxing with his wife and five kids, two of which I understand are recent college graduates and uh, did exceptionally well. He's the only guy on the planet that I think that wears orange better than me. And <laughs> as a Boston guy, I'm not too fan of a lot of New York, New Jersey guys, but I'll tell you, this guy's a class act. Joe Hagen, welcome to Orange Crossing It. Thanks, brother, for being on my show. And thank you for having me. Taking a compliment from a Boston guy who must be a Red Sox Patriot fan shows that uh, we're both American, right? That's right. And we understand the spirit of the fight. <laughs> 100%. And we know how to razz the hell out of each other, too. Yeah, that's get away right. <laughs> so, Joe, before we get going, I mean, that's I, I think I captured your life a little bit. But, hey, if you want to add a little bit to that, let's tell our listeners what you're all about. You know, maybe a little bit more of your background. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a mouthful, what you're saying. I mean, I spent a career on Wall Street. I'm always looking for, like, what's next, whether it's an industry, a stock. How can I help my friends, family, clients, and anybody else, including myself, to invest in what's next. And I started tapping into different ecosystems of people that were way smarter than me and above my pay grade in certain areas of expertise and learning a way to monetize that. And just once I learned a way to monetize some of these different areas, I started sharing it and it became my business because it became my passion. I don't like doing things that I'm not passionate about when it comes to, you know, career-wise. So as I'm investing passionately, I started sharing it. And uh, anyway, that's what I've been doing for seven years. So thank you for that introduction. As far as Orange Crushing It, I love the concept. I can explain, I believe, how I totally fit and appreciate that whole concept. But if if you allow me, I, I have to, I literally have to rewind the tape and go back to literally like, like, when I was a kid. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, so orange crushing it, I, I totally get, and I've been through a lot of things in my life. I'm 53 years old. Okay. I feel like I've been through more experiences than someone who's lived, you know, two, three times that lifespan. And that's, that's not reality. That's not a fact. That's just the way I feel sometimes. 
But when I go back to how is it that no matter what, just get, never make excuses. First of all, I had a tough father, right? Six foot five guy who didn't have a father. My grandmother came here from Ireland, you know, on a boat around the time of the Titanic. And I got to say one thing for sure. My father was tough. I got three older brothers that I shared a bedroom with that were tough. But the toughest person I ever met in my life was my grandmother. Okay. She came here as a 15 year old. She fled Northern Ireland because of the fighting with the Catholics and the Protestants or whatever. And her brothers were always captive because they were suspected IRA. And she said, I'm getting out of Dodge. She came here as a teenager. She worked in a hospital in the South Bronx for 70 years. Wow. And it was a rough neighborhood. Okay. And I started working there when I got out of college. Like while I was in college, I should say, she got me a job in security. And this woman was stoic. Like I would be at the bus stop going to high school, shivering because it's cold, feeling like, you know, I don't want to my high school football team. I want to be tough guy. You know, I would look across the street and I would see my grandmother at the time. I just found out she was like 88. I thought she was like 65. She was 88. She's taking a bus to the South Bronx and she would be standing at the bus stop, like perfectly dressed, perfect, puffy hair, like George Washington, like crossing the Delaware, like stoic. And I'm like, I'm looking at her. I'm saying to myself, man, I'm a pussy. Look at this. My grandmother is just standing there and I'm like, oh, I'm like freezing. I'm like, please, Buzz, come, come, come. And so I realized what toughness was and I kind of got to know my grandmother so much more over the years and really started asking a lot of questions. And there's nothing tougher than someone. They forced her to retire at the age of 90. She worked in the hospital for 70 years. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for like cancer, she, she had the wit of a 30 year old at 95, but cancer got her anyway. So if I can pay a little homage to her, anything I do with orange crushing it, like someone led by example, and it was really my grandmother that started it and my parents as well. Okay. So at the end of the day, I got to, you know, stay there and go back to orange crushing it. So when you grow up and you share a bedroom with three older brothers and you literally have to fight to get the Asakura every day. Orange crushing it becomes part of your DNA, right. if it's possible, you know. Yeah. So you know uh, that's supposed to be genetic. Some stuff certainly gets acquired. I don't know if it was genetic, but I will. I will tell you that fighting Irish, I understood that when I when I became a Notre Dame fan. I'm like, yeah, like I had to do that every day. So when I went into the real world and someone two three years older than me got me in a headlock, you know, at the playground. I, I'm like, yeah, okay, I've been through this routine before. I go through this every single day. I knew how to play possum. And as soon as he re- he released it a little bit, I would just come alive and just start swinging. And, oh, did you hear little Joe Hagan knocked out a kid two, three years older than him? It's because he thought he had me beat. Right. And it was nothing more than me just, just surviving with my brothers that I was doing the same thing out in the real world that I did in my bedroom and in my you know two-bedroom apartment in the Bronx with four boys. So you kind of get that. So... From the perspective of Orange crushing it, Frank, I got to say that I was kind of born into it, so it became easier for me. Sure. So to, <laughs> I, when I look back, I had an advantage over a lot of kids. And, and you know, most people say, oh, my God, he only grew up in this little, little apartment, poor thing. For me, I look back like, thank God I grew up that way. Yeah. yeah you know what I, I mean? I life the same was, way. Yeah. Life it's, was it's, easier. Like, when you go out there, like my, my kids right now, I'm like, you know, you guys are just, Jersey spoiled brats. You get everything. I've given you everything I never had. And, and they're not, they're not They're but we're giving them everything we can. Right. But, uh, that's how you started, right? That's the beginning of orange crushing it. Like that's like, the beginning of orange. Yeah. There's I no mean, other choice. It's stuff that's instilled in you. I grew up Boston Irish, you know, two brothers in my oh. bedroom. Okay. We had bunk beds. The dad would come in. If you were in trouble, man, you got dragged off the top bunk and right onto the floor. 
know? <laughs> and the first headlock was from him to you. And, you yeah. know, and, if, and then it was Catholic school too, right? So if you didn't get it from yeah. the nuns or the priests, right? You got 100%. it from your mother. hundred percent, right? And yeah. no matter how many times you, you try to defend yourself, you're like, all right, I'm getting a beating three times here. Probably one from my brother, one from my dad, one from the priest. That's right. <laughs> you know? That's right. And you get tough. Yeah. So my bedroom, when you walk in, it was probably at the size of this office. There was a bed here. My brother Sean slept in. There was a high rise that you pulled out and popped up. That was my bed. And then there was a bunk bed next to me. I remember the mic slept there and Frank slept on top. And funny story ever. You just give me access to this thinking about it is just my father was six, five. If I, you know, you could, he's literally the apartment's just big. If I go in there one more time, someone's getting beat. And so usually you shut up because you didn't want big Frank coming in. He's going to beat you. He's going to take his belt off and you're going to get whipped. If you don't listen, it's just a fact. Right. So my brother Mike saying something, we couldn't stop laughing. The funniest thing ever, my brother Sean next to me was literally out cold sleeping, right? So he comes in because we couldn't stop laughing. He's like, you sons of bitches. He comes in with his belt. He's pushing my brother Sean. My brother Sean wakes up. He's like, what? What? He's like, don't bullshit me. And he starts whipping Sean. We're like, no, dad, no. He's really innocent. Really, leave him alone. So This playing you know, possum and, is uh, legit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no. <laughs> anyway, so 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 good. So what 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 that parlayed to though was for me personally speaking. Let's if I can get back to Orange Crushing, it was sports. So I was listen. My brothers had black hair. My father died early at the age of sixty years old, and he had cancer. And he looked like Tom Selleck. My brothers, my grandmother I just talked about, all had full beautiful heads of hair. I. One nicest hair in grammar school. I had blonde hair. The football coach in high school called me you know, the Dutch boy paints kid. And I always had blonde hair, whatever. And I'm the only one that follically challenged in my entire house. So because I was blonde and everyone else was black hair, even though I have a lot of relatives that are blonde, in my house, I was the milkman's kid. I was joking around, like, what's going on here? And, and, and so at the end of the day, I wouldn't trade it for anything because I was different than my brothers. I was smaller. They were the biggest kids in their grade. I was, first of all, my mother pushed me in December. She's like, yeah. no, he's not staying. He's ready for school. He's not staying back. He's going in. So I was always the youngest kid in my grade, shortest with blonde hair. And because I played sports and competed against my older brothers constantly, I was the shortstop. I was the pitcher. My, brother, my oldest brother was a catcher, taught me a curveball at a young age, which, by the way, by the time I got to high school, kids learned how to sit on the curveball and then hit it out of the park. Yeah, And that's why I stayed with football in college, right? But as a kid, there was a lot of advantages to having older brothers that really I always competed. I would sit at the playground. My neighborhood was known for Irish drinkers and basketball players in the Bronx. And I wouldn't go to the playground to, to the court for my age group. I would always look the one up because I was always playing against my older brothers. And I would rather wait an hour, two hours to get into the next game. And I always felt my game elevate by playing with older, better players. Even if we lost that game, it was a way better experience than dominating at my own age group. You yeah. know what I mean? Sure. So, so that's, that, that, that's kind of where it started. And you talk about very interesting, how you always had a hustle, you know, and my, my, my daughter who's 13 tells me, you know, I want to go work with you. Cause I got a couple of young interns over here and I appreciate it. So things you probably couldn't do today that I did. My, my oldest brother gave me an Olympic greeting card company it was Olympic greeting cards. It was a, a, a route that he had. And you literally went door to door and sold, you know, stationary 
a bunch of birthday cards, anniversary cards, whatever, and all these different things in a catalog. And he had all these people that bought from him. He's like, I can't do this anymore because he was hustling in 10 other ways. He's like, do you want it? I'm like, he's like, you can make money with it. I'm like, okay, that's all I had to hear. You can make money with it. Because my dad's favorite two words, we'll see. Literally, I could throw a, a, a no-hitter in a baseball game. And I'd come over with that. Can I get a hot dog and a Coke? We'll see. Like, we'll see. Like, we didn't have money. So, right. <laughs> so specifically, a hot dog and a Coke, he'd get me. But, like, anything extra, like, literally, was always we'll see. So if I ever wanted anything in life, Frank, I knew I just had to go get it myself. And honestly, it's an advantage. It's an advantage once you get older, because I know kids that I've met in high school and college that had so much more money from their families and expected certain things and are in a different place in life than I am now that I'm like, thank God that I had to learn early to just, if you want something, you just got to do it yourself. Exactly. Right. My mother was the same way. Out on the street, delivering newspapers at 4.30 in the morning for the Boston Globe. 365 days a year, and it was, you want stuff, you pay for it. Yeah, you're going to have a birthday, yeah. Christmas, and all that stuff. You want that new bike? Buy it. You want that car? Pay right. for it. You want to go to college? Guess who's paying for it? You. So go do it. 100%. It is a phenomenal lesson, and it's almost like I gave my kid everything. I, I gave five kids, right, everything I wanted. I don't regret a second of it, but I almost question it. and say, like, they should have been dealt the same cards we were because you learn how to play the cards so much better when you don't. You know, you're not dealt the blackjack, you know, you got to figure out how to make this hand a winning hand. Yeah. And it's, it's so much about life. Like I literally had a, a fire hydrant in front of my apartment building. I made it a business. I, I went, a fire hydrant? I made money out of a fire hydrant. I went, I took money that I made from greeting card sales and I bought wax and car wash soap and everything else. And I started handing out flyers and talking to people on the block. Hey, listen, if you want your wash and wash your car, I gave them like three rates. I would shampoo their rugs, just a wash exterior, just like a car wash would. Yeah. I would, can shampoo the rugs or I could do the complete thing and wax it too. And I think the total, the total like wax and everything else was like 25 or $30. And I, and I built discounts into it. I was always busy. Yeah. And as soon as I made one car look beautiful, I was like, can you do my car? Can you do my car? Can you do my car? I'm like, yeah. sure. I was always out there. Like, like I literally had the thing from the, you know, whatever wrench that I got from the superintendent of the building and I'm, I knew how to turn it, just rinse the car off. Literally, I was like 12 years old turning the car around. I wasn't going driving it. They trusted me to turn the car around, wash the other side, rinse it. All right, your car's ready. It's beautiful. But, you know, what that taught me, like you said, when I listen to you about newspapers, for a few years, I also got newspapers and went to a busy train station where I handed out the newspapers. I collected it from a newspaper guy and went to the train station and sold the newspapers. You do what you got to do. Right. So my parents did what they had to do. And, and I thanked them and I loved them for it. We went to private school, even though I grew up in a two bedroom apartment in the Bronx, we went to private school. Listen, in the seventies, bell bottoms were in because I was shorter than my brothers. Yeah. I was the first trend to get rid of bell bottoms because I was so short. I got the hand-me-down jeans. They cut the bell bottoms off to fit them. Right. So <laughs> right. when bell bottoms, I, bell bottoms went out of style. I'm like, I'm, a, I'm already in style because you know, it is what it is, but so we can it, thank it, you it, for the destruction of Belvon. Yeah. You are personally, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, like my father said, I'm a legend of my own mind. Right. So like I was the first one to do that and wear socks that came up to your knees and everything else. But if I wanted to go, my parents made sure like where I live now, cause I love the Jersey shore. We got out of the Bronx for the summer and we spent the summer on the Jersey shore. So we had vacations, we had family time, we had private school and I never really wanted for nothing. But if there's something I wanted more, I would buy fishing gear 
bait because I wanted to go. If it was a rainy day and I wasn't at the beach, I want to go fishing. I had to buy all that stuff myself. Boogie boards, if I want to ride the waves, I had to buy it myself. Yeah. And so I did that. So that's, listening to your story, I would say that was my orange crushing it started when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, we'll call it tangerine crushing. It's when you're a kid, right? You weren't a full-blown yeah. orange just yet. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you cool? get that intestinal fortitude at an early age, right? You get that, that mental toughness, that physical toughness, uh, and that tenacity to keep driving. And that's, you know, the orange energy is all about that, right? It's all about being driven. It's about being passionate. It's about that, that desire to win and succeed and help others get what they want, right? And so how do you turn all of this, you know, I'm, I'm a car wash guy, I'm running around hustling, right? Just whatever it took to make a buck to getting involved in professional asset management in Wall Street. How does one transition into that and then go, you know, I, I love this shit. I I, you know, yeah, I, I got to say it's about the competition. And how do I explain that? I was addicted to competing in sports. I was addicted to being always on the all-star team, being always the number one pitcher, the shortstop, et cetera. And I loved one sport more than anything else. It was football. And they didn't have... Pop Warner in the Bronx. We played without equipment. We played whenever we could. And when I got to high school, it was Mount St. Michael Academy in the Bronx, where my father, my uncle went, and it was like a small college campus, and they had a football team. I said, Dad, I'm trying to have football. My brother Sean's like, you're trying to have football? My brother Sean was like a foot taller than me. He got left back into my grade. He's like, you're trying to have football? I'm like, yeah. He's like, right, I guess I am too. <laughs> and he was a stud from day one. He was yeah. faster than the track kids. He was like 6'1", 230. I'm this big. I could cover any, any wide receiver because I was quick. And then uh, what happened to me was, was this, is, this is really it. When you talk about life and you talk about asset management, you talk about professional. I grew 10 inches in one summer going from freshman year. I was, I was literally a shutdown cornerback where I could cover anyone. Yeah. I grew 10 inches. I came into camp. I shaved my head. I had a career. And I was like, instead of being like up to here, my brother, I was like up to here. I was literally just about the same size as him. And they're like, Joe? What the hell? And I'm looking, and I couldn't run. I couldn't run anymore. And I moved to offensive guard. Now, I was quick enough to get out of my stance that I was so quick into other kids like a shortstop should be right. that I was really good guard, you know, as a running a wishbone. But I'm like, I'm not going to be, I'm not a guard. Like, I, I was always the guy taking the shot, taking the dish, playing shortstop, pitching. I'm like, that's not a guard. I wound up moving a linebacker. But what it taught me was, oh, my God, did I have to dig deep? And I just loved the competition so much that I got into college. And this is where Wall Street comes into it to answer your question. It's a little bit of, you know, I'll find the runway here and land it. I literally went to college because I competed so well in sports and I stuck with it. And I never stopped in the gym. I never stopped getting good grades that I was going to go to Manhattan College or Fordham University and stay home in the Bronx. Okay, two great colleges. Manhattan was giving me more money. I said, I'm going to go there, but I was going to give up the love of football. I got really good at linebacker. Started, I got used to my size. I got a lot of speed back. And then I get a call one day from Marist College because we were taught by Marist Brothers. And I'm like, Coach says, come in here. And he's like, Mr. Hagan, yeah, this is Coach Malay. He wants to, he saw your tape. He'd like you to come to Marist and take a look at it. I'm like, okay, Marist College, yeah, I heard of it. Okay. So I went up there with my father and I just started walking around the campus, Frank. And I say, so you talk about breakthroughs, like, Tony Robbins world, any self-help book that I've ever read, that was a breakthrough for me. That was an access point. It was like, I started envisioning myself. Oh my God, I don't have to stay home in the Bronx. By the way, the drinking age was 18 back then. Oh, yeah. If I went to Manhattan or Fordham university, I was already a veteran of those bars, right? Like I, I come from an Irish background. You're getting good grades. You're not screwing up. All right, you can go out, but be home by midnight, you know? And, and the drinking age was 18 and it was acceptable. And I, I might've been 16, but 
I was already used to that scene. For me to go away to college was something really new and cool. And I started meeting people that had, you know, certainly a lot more money than me, didn't like their parents, which I could never understand. So I started thinking on a bigger scale once I went away to school. There was a social education that happened there. And it happened because of the orange crushing mentality. When I think back, I never gave up. I got challenged in academics. So I'm like, all right, watch this. Watch what I'll do with my grades, right? Watch what I'll do on the SAT. I got this, right? And then same thing with sports. And so now I get out of Marist College. I'm a big fish in a little pond, a puddle, small school, okay? And I, and, and I had no illusions of grandeur. I understood where I was in this world. What am I going to do? So in my neighborhood, right, guys become cops, firemen. And in my generation, you started adding in engineers and accountants and everything else. But I'm a small Irish family with only four kids. My friends were like one of 12, 16, 9, yeah. 8, you know. And so my father's looking at me and he's giving me the honest question of, you know, what are you going to do? Like, you going to take this test or that test. And I took the cop test, the police test. I took the fire test. And I just went down to Wall Street and I said to myself, I get it. You know, there's everything great about being a cop or fireman, but I don't feel like getting shot at. I don't feel like running into a burning building as much as I want to do something that I haven't seen in my family, that I witnessed in college, make a lot of money and provide for things that are cool. And to get there, there was a competition. Yeah. I had a, I like, I, I got introduced to the competition of being on the phone and calling people. And at that time, Frank, Bill Clinton was running for president. And I remember going down for, oh, there's a big thing going on with what? Like president? Like I wasn't even following politics in college. Like who's that? Oh yeah, Clinton, who's that? Bush's president, CIA guy? Yeah, Reagan's guy? Yeah. Okay, let me go downstairs. And Bill Clinton literally went downstairs. I didn't vote for the guy. In fact, doesn't matter if I like the guy or hate the guy. doesn't matter. I just got enamored by the whole thing where I'm on Wall Street across from the New York Stock Exchange. He went down and shook hands. Yeah. And I shook his hand. Okay. And I went upstairs. Like, I just shook Bill Clinton's hand. Okay. And I started taking that metaphor to what I was doing on the phone. And I'm like, that's all I'm doing on the phone. This guy's going to be president. How many hands did he shake of people that never voted for him? It didn't right. matter. He got power. He got where he was going because he was, he had a process, he had a plan. Right. And so I looked at wall street when I got down there and I said, dad, I met a guy in an elevator, by the way, that the guy looked at me, my, my mentor, and he said, that guy just did 750000 this month. And this was like 1989, 1990. And I looked at this guy. And I measured him up, you know, mentally, as far as, you know, is he really superior to me? Is he, is he, is he like, you know, the guy that built the machine, the Enigma, that, 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 what was that guy's name, the, the mathematician? Is he, like, beautiful mind? No, yeah. he's not. He, he wasn't that much brighter. The guy just worked. He wasn't giving it. He didn't have Uncle Biff give him all, all the clients from the club. Sure. But he made 750000 in a month. And I looked at him, Frank, and I said, that guy doesn't have the talent of my pinky toe. And I looked at my father and I said, Dad, I really like what I'm doing. I really, like, I enjoy it. Some people hated cold call. My brothers were like, are you getting salary and commission? I'm like, no. If you understand, if you want to get paid what you're really worth, you want all commission. Yeah, you course. pay your own salary. Like right. you pay yourself what you're worth. And I got that and I loved it. So that's how I got into it. I really looked at it and said, I met a bunch of people with a lot of money. I'm back, I'm back home, just graduated, living in that same two bedroom apartment in the Bronx, and I just wanted out. And I said, This is my way out. You know, my brothers got on the cops. You know, my oldest brother's a CFO, he was a CPA. I said, No, I'm not. I'm, this is what I'm doing. So that that's kind of how I got into it. I got Learned at a very young age, it was right after the 87 crash, and it was like before Wall Street to the 90s really just was going like this, yeah. the trajectory, I got into it. 
So I don't want to make a lot of money. Were you the boiler room guys, you know, like that? Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because yes and no. No, unequivocally, I don't like how I would meet people that would take that kid, Jordan Belford, or take that movie, Wolf of Wall Street, and glorify it. Because at the end of the day, those people, I don't care how talented they were. I was talented. Like, they literally, they knew they were robbing people. They knew. Yeah. They knew they were buying a stock that literally, they had to get really lucky if it was to get liquid. And if it went up to get liquid and get your client out, you had to get another client to buy it. Right? Yeah. So someone's getting screwed in the process. And I, I despise that. And I got offered a lot of money when I had a lot of money in the management in a few years. I mean, I literally went in and just put my head down. I would be the first one in, last one to leave, orange crushing it, literally. No one's going to outwork me. No one's going to work smarter than me. I'm going to care about what I do. Otherwise, I should just stop and go be a cop or go be a fireman or go, go to law school. The three things I was thinking of doing. And I said, but no, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm going to make this happen. And at the end of the day, I learned at Shears and Lehman Brothers when they were owned by American Express. So what Wolf of Wall Street did, that kid Jordan Belfort Stratton Oakmont, they took a process that worked at Lehman Brothers and they took it, he went out to Long Island and he applied the same process to penny stocks that had no liquidity and they could charge crazy commissions. If I'm buying you Nike, because I thought Nike when they signed Jordan back in the 90s was going to be a great company, I'm buying it. I can only charge a certain amount of commission. Today, there's commission-free trading, but back then, there was a, a, a grid. You can't go past 5%. And if I'm buying you, you know, a little bit, a diminished amount of stock, 100 shares, 1,000 shares, whatever, there's only maybe $100, $200 I could charge anyway. And I built my business that way because clients respected why I was buying it, the service that I provided, the relationship that, that we developed, and everything else. But to answer your question, it was nowhere near... Wolf of Wall Street from that perspective, at any point in my career, I could have any client call me up and say, you know, my dog died, my aunt died, something bad happened, I got to sell everything, I need the money, because it's an emergency. If it was like an emotional decision that something happened, I thought they were making a mistake, I may try and talk them out of it, but if it was a legitimate, like, emergency, and someone said, listen, no offense to much, Joe, you know, I need my money, whether it's 50 grand, 500 grand, whatever it is, no problem done. I'm in yeah. liquid stocks. I hit the bid. Their money's wired to them in literally by settlement date. As soon as the trade settles, it's wired right out. That's how my business was at all times. I would never do those deals to answer your question as far as the Wolf of Wall Street and boiler room stuff. But yeah. I did build teams and taught guys how to be professional, how to have that influence over the phone. Yeah. I and I, believe me, I got plenty of calls from you guys <laughs> as I was building my <laughs> portfolio. I was successful. Yeah. And I, I would get the calls and I even got a, a job offer at Smith Barney, but you know, it was kind of one of these things. Hey, Frank, do you know, 24 people. Yeah. Well, 12 will win, 12 will lose. You know, those 12 that won now six will win and six will lose. You know, the six that won, three will win and three will lose the three that won. They're your whales. Okay. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm fucking over 21 people though to get the three. That doesn't sound like right. a good business strategy to me, you know, but no, no, <laughs> you know, crazy. Yeah, but crazy. I'll tell you what, where I had an advantage for the first literally 10 to 12 years, I'll tell you where I screwed up on Wall Street. I went in there and said, listen, I literally was book smart. My, my son got a perfect score as SAT. I came close, right? So I had good grades, but I also, also felt I was street smart and I had the competition from sports that just wouldn't quit. And when I got to Wall Street, I looked around. I'm going to learn a lot about stocks because, by the way, there was rebuttals that you had to teach Frank Clark on the phone. By the way, it's not just the not everybody was buying stocks back then. It was literally really opening up to being being more when I first got on Wall Street to be more, uh, you know, 
broad, you know, as far as open to everybody. You had to say, well, I know you're not in the market, but you may want to think about it because it is. It's more liquid than real estate. It's this. I love real estate, but this is more liquid. You might want to put this in your portfolio, et cetera. But I said one thing. I looked, I looked years past. I love history. You got to learn from history. You're dumb. And I looked forward. I said, there's been so many smarter people than me before me. And there's going to be so many more smarter people ahead of me. It's going to be my thing. Like, like how am I going to get an edge? I don't want to be a sheep. And I literally used, I paid, I wound up paying 3000 a month for something that I used about less than 1% of, and that was a Bloomberg machine, okay? Because I learned, I'm at Smith Barney, right? So yeah. if you check it out, only times I would get a research report, I would look at it, and I'm like, I'm like, like, went behind the ears, I'm reading into it, this is great, I'm going to bring this to clients. But I said, you know, like, like, let me in my street branch check into this. I go, all right, this analyst, what's this analyst track record? What are the last bunch of stocks he recommended? Oh, none of them really did anything. And I'm like looking at the stock he's recommending. I'm looking at all the reasons why he's recommending the stock. I'm looking at, I'm just looking at the chart. I'm like, all right, stock's 28 now. He loves it. It was like 18 two months ago, and it was like 10 last year. Why does he love it now at 28? Shouldn't he loved it back then? Right. What I realized was all this good news was built into it, profitability for the institutions that were Smith Barney's clients, to me, right, being suspicious is like, okay, they're putting a buy on it and they're putting it out to the retail world so that we start buying it and their institutions get out. So there's liquidity, right? I, there's no doubt in my mind that that's what happened across Wall Street. So I developed a program, you know, with the help of others, where not only I wanted to see what institutions were buying a stock, but I wanted to see insiders buying a stock. Because Frank Clark owns Orange University, right? Orange Construction, let's call it. Sure. Do I need Henry Pankblad, whatever that Blodgett's name, when he was the internet guy from Merrill Lynch, analyst that was like, you know, do I need one of these analysts, pimple face coming out of Harvard telling me that ABC company is a great buy and you should be buying it? If I look at Orange Construction, I look at Frank Clark, the guy's only bought his own company stock three times. Usually, not all the time, it was because there was some kind of event that happened there that didn't meet street expectations. It might have been a literal pothole or a speed bump or something. And then the, the market threw the baby out with the bathwater and the stock got whacked and it's cheap. And in that moment, Frank Clark said, this is silly. I'm going to buy 10,000 shares. You're going to put your own after tax money into it. And to me, it was a significant purchase. Oh, and by the way, whenever Frank Clark's done this, he's never been wrong. Doesn't mean he can't be wrong now, but I'd rather take that Right. Along with yeah. other, a lot of times you'd see multiple insiders buying a certain stock. And so I took that and with a Bloomberg machine, I would get access to real time insider buying. That would be in Barron's three weeks later. Yeah. So I built the niche, you know, three weeks after I bought the stock, it would be up 20, 30 percent. I would fax all of the uh, clients of mine, the, the, the Barron's sheet that would show the insider buying. But again, years later, all this stuff with the Internet became free. There's a lot of websites that track this stuff. But I, I really that's how I made my bones on Wall Street. And that's how I, I got into it for the competitiveness and the ability to make money. To me, I couldn't strap on the, the shoulder pads anymore and pull up my socks and get put my cleats on and get in the game and, and say, all right. I mean, was, listen, there's a lot of thought. People don't understand football, how much thought there is into it. Like I literally had to study the upcoming offense and all the, all the schemes, all the formations that they came right. out of the huddle in. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a, if you're in a blitz and you're calling something and all of a sudden you're blitzing into their weakness and their strengths over here, check, check, check. You got to scream. You start going to go, you got to go back. You got to change everything in real time recognition and move it. And I just felt the market offered me that kind of fluidity of, Oh my God, the stock's up. We got to get out. Oh my God. It's down. We got to get in. The sheep are doing this. We got to do something else. 
I love the market for that. So I, I, that's a long answer to a, a really simple yeah, question. But your ability to move and, and make decisions, right? That's the, that's the leadership. That's orange energy, right? That's, there yes. are people that, 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 I mean, I heard General Schwarzkopf say, when you're put in a position of leadership, make a decision. Don't fuck around. Don't yeah. waste time, right? Make a decision, right or wrong, okay? But make yep. one, move. And like you said, okay, if you make the wrong one, check, check, check. All right, let's get this line back in. It was wrong decision, but we're making one. And, and you know, that's incredible. You know, Joe, one of the things that um, I find to be very, very true, and especially now with the pandemic and, you know, volatility in just people's minds, is people do things for one of two reasons, and that's to get pleasure or avoid pain. And avoiding pain is another word of saying they're afraid, right? People do not want to be afraid. And yet, you know, a lot of decisions or a lot of lack of decisions are made out of fear. And right now we're in a situation, right, where nobody knows whether we're coming into another wave of this pandemic, right? Are we hunkering down just when we thought we had some freedoms back? Yeah. How do you address your clients? I mean, you've got 30 years experience on, on Wall Street. And yeah, before the internet was around and all that stuff, what you developed, in my opinion, was trust. You're still building trust. Trust is the foundation for a long-term business. It's a tr- especially when it comes to finances and financial planning and this asset management, it's got to be based on trust. And yet we have a, you know, a world that's full of fear right now. I would say, you know, people like ourselves are probably a little bit more fearless and still drive through it. You know, we've learned how to manage our winters, if you will. But yet, you know, the world is still filled with fear right now. So how do you navigate, you know, people that are listening right now and going, well, it's easy for you guys. You amass a bunch of wealth and, you know, you can sit on it. You can, you can ride to a tough time, but you know, shit, I'm living on my, my, my retirement now. I didn't think I'd be using that money. I didn't think I'd be borrowing, living on my credit cards. I didn't think, you know, how do you get people over this hump to still want to invest and go, you know what? Yes, it's a crazy time, but yet, hear me out. This is what I want. How do you get people past that bubble? Well, I mean, I just think that you, I, I, I just be the leader that I am and really speak from experience. And, and let me explain. So my trajectory in my career, forget it. I made probably 250000 as a rookie, tripled that, doubled that, doubled that again, and doubled it. And in four or five years, I said, holy shit, I made more money. I'm going out to dinner with my parents tonight, right? I made more money than my father made in life. How do I look at that? And I looked at it one way. I never changed. I respected my father the same way. I feared him and loved him the same way as I always did as a kid and just knew that I had to pay that forward to my kids, right? That's the way I looked at it. Like, this is what his sacrifice was for, so own it. And, and earn even more and don't be guilty about it. Just don't be a jerk because you made some money and you're someone different. I would still go up to the Bronx and play darts on Tuesday nights and be the same guy that used to like, you know, somebody had to buy beers for because I was cold calling on a minimum wage and I couldn't make money. I had four jobs. I was Jamaican. I was bartending. I was bouncing. I was working in the hospital. I was cold calling. I was doing whatever, whatever it took to make it. I made it. That's Orange Crush. Well, that never, that never changed. And like you said, you, you, you're living on your retirement in different ways that you never expected. Well, let me tell you something. Nothing could have been more right for me in my life. And I used to look at myself in the mirror sometimes. I'm like, like, how is this happening? Like, why is this happening? And I wouldn't be guilty about it. I'm like, Jesus, I'm blessed. But stocks, all my positions were working. My clients were making money. I'm making money. I'm going just, it's not stopping. I'm building a firm. I'm adding brokers and the firm's taking off. Well, guess what? What's going to happen to you in life is always a bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. Life is going to hit you. And the first time life has hit me, and it's hit me a few times since, the first real time life said, hey, what's up? How you doing? I'm over here on life. <laughs> it was literally my first wife got breast cancer. And I'm like, okay, this is different. Um, I got to address this. And we went through her 
first procedure where they took the, a little bit of a thing out of her, her breast and everything else and said, well, we're going to do aggressively because she's young. And then, okay, and things are still going. And we're like, oh, we dealt with that. And then about a year later, it came back and, and, and ravished her in a way that was just not fair. And literally, she got an aneurysm the day I was taking her to the radiologist. Thank God, because she could have been driving my twins who just graduated college. She could have been driving them and got in a car accident with them because she literally froze up in the shower and just had an aneurysm the day I was taking her to her, her uh, radiologist because she had to get, you know, it spread to her brain. And then literally like a week later, September 11th happened, and I literally took care of her, took the kids to school, was on the later boat, and I watched a plane at the second tower. And just my life went totally upside down from that point. Business, everything. So how do I do it? How do I convince people? I, I don't know. I just do. And I have, the, I have the benefit of just life beating me up a whole bunch of times and never stopping. So, you know, people used to ask me, oh, my God, like, like you're still running a boardroom. You're still, you know, and a couple of years later, unfortunately, my wife passed away, like, and I would do it. And I would tell you, Frank, everyone's like, how the hell are you running a boardroom of salespeople? How are you so strong? You know how so strong? It reminded me of how I do it. You know, it reminded me of Sean Callagy. He plays on the morning huddle sometimes. They hear The Rising and he talks about it. Yeah. So that was an album that came out after September 11th. We had a tanning bed in my basement, right? We used it a handful of times. My wife said, oh, let's get a little bass before we go on vacation. This is before kids. Once we had kids, it was never used, ever. Yeah. But I found a way to go down under the stairs in my basement when tanning bed was. I would put on The Rising when I was dealing with my wife, you know, the kids, all the stresses. I was an animal. I was orange crushing it. But... The reason why I was able to do that every single day, because I had a valve. It was like Frankenstein's thing on the side of his deck. I would go into that tanning bed. I would turn on the rising. I'd put the fan on with the, t- with the tanning bed on the, the hum oh, yeah. of the tanning bed. Oh, yeah. the, music yeah. from, the music from the rising. And I would cry like a baby. And I would let it all out. Done. And I was cleansed. And then I would just come out of that. And I was like, okay, let's go crush it again. So at some point, I think everybody needs that kind of outlet. Because I've yeah. dealt with some serious you know, tragedies in my life. It was my grandma, then it was my father, then it was my wife. And it was just like nonstop when life was great. And so when I talked to clients, COVID-19, like my wife didn't curse, drink, or smoke. And I was an animal. And that's why I loved her. And she's gone. Like, why not me? I'm the one you should take, not her. And she never cried about it. She cried about people. She cried one time, said, I want to see my kids grow up. And... She cried more about September 11th. We took a ride. I took her out because she wasn't feeling well. I'm like, well, let's go down to the boat. We used to take the ferry to Wall Street. And we drove around. We saw flowers on cars of people that we commuted with every day. God, not them, not them, not them. And she would have started to cry. The only time she cried, not about her, but about other people. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Frank, what a lesson. I mean, I'm sitting around. You could literally punch me in the face, hit me with a bat, cut my leg off. If I cry and complain about it right now, I'm weak. Because I watched a woman deal with everything and smile, look into the abyss and smile. So when I talk to a client about COVID-19, look, <laughs> this is the, you know, they didn't, there was more H1N1, 5-1, whatever the hell the bird flying, swine flu, whatever yeah, the hell it was flu. with Obama. Yeah. The right. media wasn't going crazy about it. They weren't testing like it. We're going to get through it. The virus has happened. Be smart with yourself and your health and your money. This is what we should do. Right. Yeah. And if you're, you know, if, if you're wrong, you're probably more right than what they're going to tell you on TV anyway. Right. Be, be intelligent and be informed. Right. 
own your decision. Just own, own it. Own your decision. Own your truth. Right. Own your truth. Yeah. And Joe, I, you know, I can't thank you enough for uh, expressing your vulnerability and showing that it's actually part of your strength. Like you embrace your vulnerability. You said, this is part of my ritual. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to release. And, uh, and not too many tough guys will say, you know, hey, they'll never admit that they're vulnerable because that's typically a sign of weakness. Right. Like you, I grew up on the shortest kid in the school. I, you know, I was second shortest in my class. I wasn't follically challenged. And by the way, I like to turn that as scalp gifted. Okay, turn it into a positive. Um, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but, I may use but nonetheless, that. <laughs> but nonetheless, right? You know, when you're the smallest kid, you're the kid bullied. You're the kid that has to learn how to fight. And yet, you know, you turn that around, and a lot of guys just never, at least guys that are our age, right, in that generation, my dad is still this kind of guy, right? Not going to show you that he cries. Not going to have that happen, right? Tough guy all never, the way. That generation won't. That generation won't. Yeah, he's 83 years old. He's not going to cry. He's not going to let, let you see that stuff, right? He and loves yet, you as much as you love your kids. Yeah. He's just from a different generation. I get it. My dad exactly. would look at me and just, I got it. It's just, just not what they do. He didn't even have a father, but your father sounds like the same exact guy. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, when your dad's saying, we'll see, I guess he's had the pride of seeing his, <laughs> seeing his son grow up to be a, a success and a strong guy. Four of them. Four of them. Four, Four in the Bronx. Yeah, that have all done well and raised families and and the, and when we were like like we used to look at it. I'm sure your dad was the same way. Like man, he's a disciplinarian. He's a hard ass. He is so tough on us. And everything else, like this son of a bitch. Then I would get to college and I would kind of I started understanding when I hit 17, 18 why he did it, right? Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I'm thankful for it. And I would hear these people with a lot of money saying, I hate my dad. He's a this. He's a that. He's a that. I'm like what? Did you just say you hate your mom? Did you just say you hate your dad? I couldn't fathom that, so I would never let that happen in my life if I could help it, right? I was trying. Sure, sure. But, but just because your dad didn't tell you, Frank, I love you, didn't mean he didn't. It just they, they come from a different generation. And you exactly. Perspective for it. But the thing about it, you didn't know any different, right? Because the kids in the neighborhood would be like, you know, they'd come outside and be like, oh, you got a, you got a beating from your dad? <laughs> you got a beating? No, I got a beating from your dad. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> You yeah. probably deserved it, right? We didn't think any different, man. That's the way it was all raised. Anyways, Joe, thanks for uh, sharing your success today with me. Orange crushing it, your drive, everything else. Hey, if you could leave our listeners with, uh, I don't know. I think that success is mindset, right? They say 80% of success is mindset. 20% is your actions, the actual mechanics of it. What's one or two mindset principles that you know, you'd like to impart, maybe on your kids or have imparted on your kids? We'll impart someday on your grandkids. Like, this is the two. These are the one or two things, man. If you learn anything, learn this. Okay. Would it so be I'm, writing it down. I'm, I'm writing it down now with my, my pen. I would say two things. Will it to happen and count your blessings. I hear complaints all the time around me and different people. And I look at them and say, I know a, a loved one of mine that, like, my wife would complain because we've got five kids and we're busy. We're just busy. It just, just, it's work. But everything is work. Like, the love is exponential. Christmas is even greater. Birthdays are greater, but there's more work. There's more stress. There's more bills. There's, everything is just, you know, amplified. But we don't have a kid with special needs. We don't. I'm like, could you look at your cousin? Could you look at this one that has an autistic child? Could, could you? We, we're blind. We don't have to deal with that. So, a hundred percent. Number one, I would just say, count your blessings. Yeah. Life is treating you so much better than you even realize. And if you get hit, like my my my, my wife's not here for like literally two, since 2003, 17, 18 years, right? And 
she counted her blessings. She probably went to the grave with more blessings than people today are suffering without even looking around. She's just like, wow. She's like dying. And she's like, wow, what a beautiful day. Look at these flowers. Look at this. She recognized everything. You shouldn't have to wait until you get hit with a death sentence because of a cancer or something else or because someone leaves you or something terrible happens in your life without counting your blessings and saying every single day, look outside. I'm six foot above ground. Let me own this moment because I'm only here for a certain amount of time. So yeah. without question, count your blessings and just, just own your life and love it. And the second thing would be, it's in the same concept, is just will it to happen. Like, I got into certain situations, oh my God, this happened in one business, this happened in one business, I'm waiting for this company to pay me, I got things happening, I got two kids starting college, I gotta come up with 100 grand for the first year, and this guy's not paying me, and do I, re do I liquidate my retirement account, what do I do? I'm like, I'm just gonna put my head down and make it happen. I'm just gonna make it happen. And so if you will things to happen, they will. I just, I'm, if you own it, if you have an absolute 100% determination that you're going to win, if you, if you're going to do a, so much dramatically better than if you're defeated. Never be defeated. Like if you're defeated going into it, those are the results you're going to get. Yeah. Say count your blessings and just will it to happen. Make it happen and just want it so bad that you, you pick your head up and you're like, oh shit, it's happening. <laughs> well, that becomes one of the things you're grateful for, right? You get to, 100%. you know, it's the will it to happen. And if I can add one thing to that, it's make it happen. Okay. You can will it to yeah. death. Okay. But you know what? If you don't got to take some action, you got to will it so much that it just drives you. It becomes all you think about. It becomes your passion. It becomes your why. It becomes your, you know, your purpose, if you will. Yes. Right. So, well, Joe, I, I, I didn't mean, I didn't mean will it to happen and sit around and pray and hope. Will yeah, it kumbaya. No, get it yeah, done. No, no, you're, you're right. Thank you for that distinction. 100% make it happen. Want yeah. it so bad that, that you're not only making it, your mind is, is, is controlling all of your actions and you're making it happen. Your body's moving where that energy's taking you, right? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. One last thing. Before this call, I called a mutual friend and I said, you know, I have Joe on the, on the, on the show today and I know he's a really successful guy, but you know, he's a New York, New Jersey guy. I got to bust his balls a little bit. And I go, you know, is there something I can ask him about? He goes, well, ask him about his uh, wedding magic tricks. He can do. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, that's really funny. So. <laughs> Your so hidden there, talent, there, there, Joe. <laughs> 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 no, I, I, I actually got thrown out of a party, but it was really funny. The people that left the party with me. Like, thank you. That was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And that party stuck anyway. But I was at a mutual friend's party. It was, a, uh, I think, an engagement party at a nice place in Manhattan. And the guy was like so like stuck up. It was like a stuffy place. And we're, I'm, I'm being professional. We're hanging out, but we're loose. It's an engagement party. We're trying to be loose. The guy was like, I said, can I show you a magic trick? The guy, the guy was like, just really, a lot of people on edge. He's walking around, whatever. I go, hey, you want to see a magic trick? The guy goes, yeah. So I grab, I grab the, the tablecloth, the white linen. I go, I go, none, none, none of these glasses are gonna move. This is really cool. So I snapped the white tablecloth out, and I failed miserably. The glasses fell all over the place. Oops. I go, ah. So we pick them up. We put them. I go, I'm just kidding. I go, I can't. I said, but I can make you disappear. He's like, what? I go, I said, I, what? I can make you disappear. You want me to make you disappear? The guy's like, look at me. He's like, all pissed that old things are broken. And the guy goes, yes, I took the tablecloth. I put it over his head and I wrapped him up. 
didn't, he, he didn't like it. If you, 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 it's one of those things, Frank, you had to see to experience. When we walked out of the place, the people were telling me, like, the, I'm not going to name names, but they would tell me that was the funniest thing they ever seen in their life. And thank you for getting us out of that stuffy party. <laughs> we've all wanted to do it. Come on. We've all wanted to grab a tablecloth and yank it and see if we can do it. So I'm glad you're I the guy that one did it. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. one glass stayed. The rest of them. <laughs> the rest of them was shattered. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, everybody. Joe Hagen, my guest today. And uh, Joe, thanks a ton, man. I really, really appreciate your candor, your wit, your humor, your drive, your vulnerability, brother, and just uh, your intense orange energy. So keep on crushing it, man. And uh, really, really thanks again. And enjoy the rest of your day. You're a great guest, man, and good friend. Thanks. Hey, th- thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here, Frank. All Take right. care, man. Go get it, kid. Thanks for listening to this episode of Orange Crushing It. Hope you're fired up to take on your week with unstoppable energy. Hey, if you like the broadcast, please subscribe. Share it with your best buds, and please write a badass review. You can reach me at themrorange.com. Stay inspiring, all.